as usual, begin by relaxing. If you haven't relaxed already, or if you have, relax some more. And connect to where you are, your spot, your seat, your room, your outdoors, whatever is around you. The size, the shape of that room, the light, the sounds, the feeling. Take a deep breath and straighten up. Expand your awareness in all directions throughout the room. Open your gaze. Full visual field. without fixating on any part of it. Relax and breathe. And locate yourself inside your head. the center of your head. Front, back, left, right. But not, not up and down. Locate yourself sort of at the bottom of your head where it joins the spine. And look around.
looking down, you see your body. Extending that forward, you see the floor without changing your gaze, seeing metaphorically the floor extending out in front of you and to every side, every side. Going to the walls, feeling the walls up to the ceiling and the ceiling above. Come back to the top of your head, from the top of your head, backwards down to the back of your head, to the back of your neck. And feel that surface. Feel the shoulders, the back of the shoulders, center of the back. And Gently go down your back, feeling the surface of the back. And from that surface of your back, look at the space behind you. Maybe there's a wall behind you, whatever it is behind you. Connect with it. Be aware of it. Pay attention to what's behind you. Go down to the bottom of your back, the lower back. Pay attention to what's behind you from the lower back. Then come up to the shoulder blades, shoulders. Feeling your back and the space behind you. And just lightly check into where are you looking from? Who's directing the process? Who's implementing the looking? Let's see if you can locate that function, that location, that place. If you can find a general location for it, is there a sense for how big it is? Is it a point? Is it equal to the diameter of your head or your neck? Is it square? Is it round? Is it oval?
maybe you get a better look at it if you step out of your body and place yourself in front of yourself looking at yourself at head level and take a look look in your eyes see that blank stare you see in the mirror every day who am i what am i doing here where's it all going see if you can look and find out where's the center where's the place that's directing the gaze that's looking out of my eyes sitting in the top of the head bottom of the head the neck the heart center the hara the center of the body the navel center Does it pervade the body equally? When you look at yourself, where are you looking? Is it in the eyes? Can you see through the looker into the wall behind you? See the wall behind your head? And then just let go of this silly process, asking all these silly questions. And just come back and re-inhabit your body. Connect with the posture. And connect with the breath. Feel the breath going out into the space around you. And open up to that space. Come back to the posture, the body connect with that, and then the next out breath. And just return to normal shamatha practice. Forget about the silly exercise.
In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, I take refuge from my heart in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the paths of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Shri, please accomplish this. Good evening. Welcome back from Samadhi. Now, I have this vague recollection that we didn't finish the packet last class. Does anybody else have that recollection? I think we assigned yes. Mary Beth to let us know where we stopped. Is that right? Does, does anybody remember where we've ended? It's at the very beginning. We stopped at the beginning. That's I appropriate. Have to, we have to go back to the very beginning. Oh, oh I see. Just do the whole thing all over again. Uh, I have the ear of this page folded over, cornered, whatever they call that, elephant-eared. Um, I'm sorry, yeah. You know where we are? Um, on the syllabus, you've indicated uh, readings from class 11, starting with cloudless sky. Jeez, you're brilliant. It's right here. <laughs> Just a thought. Just a thought, just thinking. Okay, cool. Oh, we still get to do the fourth moment. That's such a cool piece. Okay. So, any comments or suggestions before Eric? we begin? Yes, ma'am. Um, the your volume is is very low. It was during the guided meditation. I don't know if there's anything you can do about that. Oh, well, uh, let's see. Was there a guided meditation? I don't think, I think you were maybe hearing things. No, just kidding. Um, how's that? Is that better? Is it too loud? That sounds okay. good to me. Okay, good. Thank you, Barbara. So-so. So-so. Kiki, how's that? Good evening and welcome. A little better, I think. Oh, thank you. Sorry to interrupt everything. Speakers? Yeah. Okay. Zoom meeting all uh, maximized. Okay. So tonight we begin with uh, the topic of Shamatha Vipassana. 
for a change. And uh, we're, at, we're technically on the subject of the union of Shamatha and Vipassana and uh, I think, right? No, uh, we're, we're uh, in the topic of the measure of accomplishment of Shamatha and Vipassana. So how would they accomplish the two of them together? And basically, it's just like a, a, a number of readings about the progression of the both of them and further, further uh, versions of defining them, which help clarify our understanding of what they are and how to practice them. So on page 13 of, uh, of last week's package, which is package 11. Cloudless Sky, the uh, section on Vipassana from this book called Cloudless Sky, which is a wonderful little book on Mahamudra, focusing on the practice of Shamatha and Vipassana, as Mahamudra does, by uh, the third Jonga Kongchul, who uh, came to this country three times with His Holiness Karmapa, and then a couple of times on his own before meeting his very untimely death at, uh, in uh, 19... 91, really sad situation. What is Vipassana or seeing the unseeable? We talked about that. How do you see the unseeable? You have to look without looking. Refer to, according to the teachings. Oh, did my screen just turn blue? No, no. it's just me, something I ate. Okay, Vipassana is the wisdom which discriminates all phenomena. The insight that arises is the fruition of Shamatha. This doesn't mean, however, that Vipassana itself arises by itself out of the Shamatha meditation of remaining in calmness. That's an interesting statement. It doesn't arise by itself out of that. This does not mean that Vipassana insight arises by itself seems like there needs to be some intention. In Shamatha, one focuses the mind one pointedly on something, whereas in Vipassana, one experiences the actual nature of things. So we'll see this definition over and over again until hopefully we're comfortable with that, this way of explaining Shamatha and Vipassana according to the traditional versions, is that Shamatha's stability of mind, described in various ways. And Vipassana is understanding the true nature, understanding the nature of X, Y, or Z. Vipassana involves meditating on investigating the nature of phenomena, or rather the fact that they have no real existence, which is the true nature of all phenomena. Thus it can be said that Shamatha is meditation by focusing, whereas Vipassana is meditation by analyzing very different than the way that Trungpa Rinpoche's version appears on the surface, which come, leads, us, leads us back to a question that I'll just repeat and put out there of like, why did Trungpa Rinpoche teach Vipassana the way he did? And let's circle back on that periodically. There are various ways of applying Shamatha and Vipassana. For instance, one can first practice Shamatha and then 
having achieved mental calmness perceived with Vipassana or vice versa. Or one can practice them in alteration, first shamatha for a while, then Vipassana after which one goes back to shamatha and then back to Vipassana and so on. There's the sense of uh, repeating as if as in a cycle, the wheel of meditation. Combining them, calm abiding and investigation is an extremely effective method of practice. So that's the ideal is if you can combine them. But you can only combine them if you have achieved a certain level of proficiency in them because the uh, analytical quality or investigation type quality of Vipassana, the active quality of it disrupts your shamatha if your shamatha is not spacious enough. So the way that Chung Primshe presents shamatha as uh, abiding in space is actually a very helpful launching pad for experiencing the subtly active process of Vipassana. If, if shamatha is too heavy, then it, it dampens the potential for Vipassana. And if Vipassana is too active, it just it uh, disturbs shamatha, it destroys your shamatha. We seem to have entered into a subway tunnel. There we go. <laughs> um, if, for instance, one is concentrating on the coming and going of the breath, just happen, if we happen to be concentrating on the breath, just happen. During shamatha, mental calmness means focusing totally on the breathing without letting the mind wander. And Vipassana would mean that after a while, one not only focuses on the breath alone, but also examines and achieves insight into the nature of the breath. Now, we don't usually do that in Vipassana. We usually shift right to looking at who's breathing. But traditionally, you would do that. You would look at what is breath. And this, this gets back to the use of the terms um, non-analytical image, that weird term. The breath is experienced as a non-analytical image in the mind or a, uh, a reflection that's replicated in the mind of some theoretically ex external or real object. And in shamatha, we just concentrate, we just focus, place our attention on that and keep coming back to that, while at the same time being, being mindful of everything else going in our being, going on in our being and around our being. So it's not a concentrative or absorption type of focus or concentration. And then Vipassana would mean looking at, well, where is the supposed object start and where does it end? Where does the breath start and end? Does it have a discrete beginning and an end? Is it delineated spatially? Does the in-breath cause the out-breath? Is there a cause and effect relationship to them? 
are they interdependent? Is the in-breath only defined by its being the uh, uh, counterpoint, so to speak, of the out-breath? And when we talk about the breath, do we talk about what air is in the body, remains in the body when we breathe out? A lot of air remains in the body when we breathe out. Obviously, a lot of air remains outside when we breathe in. So we pretty quickly see the sort of illusory nature of the breath. And that's a good, actually a good example of analyzing the nature of an object, which previously was left unanalyzed, and therefore it's called non-analytical image, not analyzed image. After one has turned one's mind for a while to the nature of the breath, then one concentrates again one-pointedly on the breathing. Even though you've sort of dissolved the idea of the breath being anything discrete, you then just return. Simply, you sort of ignore that fact and return to it as if nothing happened and just relax on the feeling of the breath. This is one way of alternating. Although we speak of them as uh, two distinct types of meditation that can be practiced either sequentially and alternation, alternation, the actual point is to join the two. If we do only the, the, each of them sent separately, then we'll never have the union. What does it mean to practice them together? Shamatha involves letting the mind rest on the object. Both mind and object lack ultimate reality. This true nature is present at all times this true nature of lacking and the ultimate nature. Not only when one achieves insight into it through Vipassana meditation, it's not like suddenly the nature of empty, of being empty, of being real appeared, but it was there before and after. Maintaining this awareness or insight into shamatha meditation, that is not separating one-pointedness from awareness, is the union of them. So while we're experiencing the focus of attention on this supposed object called the breath, we're at the same time realizing that we can't find it. And instead of letting that disturb us, we just continue to pretend that we can find it and rest on it. And he uses the example of anger. How do we meditate with emotions? Uh, if anger arises, we notice that it's arisen, we acknowledge it. And um, this is the mindfulness or calmness of shamatha that, which allows one to notice an object, in this case a feeling. Based on this, one examines the feeling or the thought of it by means of apashna. Calmness, movement, and awareness are the three phases that one examines. Calmness corresponds to the question, where does the feeling or thought dwell? So calmness has a sense of stability of the part of our mind that is attentive, uh, that has a stable attention without flitting about. And movement refers to the uh, either the changeability or the changing nature of the object or the changing nature of the subject our inability to really stay focused on one object, but instead our mind flits about. So there's these experiences in our mind 
sometimes simultaneously, often in sequence, of first a sense of stable calmness, stillness, and then there's movement. What happened to the stillness when thought arose? It disappeared, it moved away. And then um, we might ask, and, uh, and then the third aspect is awareness. What's present between the arising and the subsiding of the thought and the feeling? So while the feeling and thought is there and I'm aware of the thought or feeling, or when I'm aware of anything, what is it that's being aware? So in, in uh, the scheme of Vipassana of Shamatha Vipassana meditation, in particular Vipassana meditation in the Mahamudra tradition, we focus on this triad of the still part of our mind, the moving aspect of mind, and the awareness aspect of our mind that is that looks at both of those, that looks at the calmness when we're on an object, that looks at the discursiveness when we're not focused on the object. Those three. Now movement can include thoughts, it can include emotions, it can include memories, sense perceptions, a range of different types of so-called movement. And we look at, in Vipassana meditation, in Mahamudra tradition, we look at all three. We look at the still aspect of mind, the moving aspect of mind, and the aware aspect of mind. Gradually asking ourselves, are they different? There's a widespread belief that Shamatha Vipassana only practiced at the beginning at the, of the path as a preliminary. This is totally false. They're practiced throughout the entire Buddhist path in all its different aspects. The Shamatha can be found in the development of bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment, as well as in visualization practice called Utpatikrama in Sanskrit or development phase in Vajrayana. These are nothing but a form of Shamatha. So your visualization practice is shamatha. Bodhicitta is shamatha. The four measurables are shamatha practice. Even though different methods and concepts are being used, they're shamatha. The same can be said for the six yogas of Naropa, which involve, among other things, holding one's prana, which is the inner energy of the wind, the breath, and meditating on what are called nadis and bindus, which are aspects of the tantric conception of the body. All these different forms of meditation are ways of practicing shamatha because they're based solely on mental calmness and can't be practiced without it. So he's going through, he's probably using the same text that we're using. Jomgun Kamtral, his first incarnation, two incarnations back, text on shamatha vipassana from the treasury of knowledge and he's looking at the section that we looked at tonight in terms of the root text and package 12 which is how does uh, how does shamatha and vipassana correlate to the different varieties of practice so we'll come back to that but since he's doing it we'll go through it once here 
Similarly, with Vipassana on the Shravaka path, Vipassana means meditating on egolessness. On the Bodhisattva path, it means meditating on emptiness and dependent origination, which includes keeping in mind the fact that phenomena have no true existence, true nature, true reality, all synonymous. In Vajrayana, Vipassana is practiced in, the, in what's called a Sampanakrama, or completion phase of meditation practice where we let go of all complexity. There is no such thing as a Buddhist path that does not apply shamatha and vipassana. Interesting statement. If one practices them properly, then there's no confusion and no discursive thoughts to be given up. When... This doesn't mean that there's no discursive thoughts. It means there's no discursive thoughts to be given up because they don't obstruct our practice. They actually are the objects of our practice. We look at the nature of thought, of concepts, and see them dissolve. As we look at their nature, we can't find them. And so they dissolve into themselves or somewhere. Because their very nature is devoid of actual or true real existence as something discrete and what they are supposed to be. Simply letting the mind rest in its own nature, having discovered the nature of the mind through Vipassana practice as being empty but, but spontaneously present, as a knowing called in the tradition luminosity, which just refers to the knowing quality of mind. By letting the, our mind rest in that unfindable presence, presence that cannot be found in any discrete way no can't be found in a location shape size place nor through any other characteristic it can't be felt it can't be um, measured and thereby confusion dissolves spontaneously into itself without the need for further antidotes and we saw this in the slogans of Atisha letting go of even the antidote. When one realizes this ultimate nature of mind, there's no longer any moments that fall outside of the sphere of meditation. Our whole life is meditation. We're constantly in samadhi because there's, no dist there's nothing that's outside of samadhi in this case. The only way to achieve this realization, however, is through meditation. When one is free from the struggle to give up delusion, afflictive emotions, emotions, or to attain some with some sort of wisdom, then meditation no longer exists when we've given up this project because there's no longer any separation between anything meditator meditation and object of meditation for beginners however who have not realized this meditation in discrete periods frequently and deeply and repeatedly is essential as long as concepts are still present it's essential to practice meditation otherwise the experiences that arise from meditation joy clarity and non-conceptualization will never arise these experiences are called the adornment of insight and he's talking about these three 
um, aspects of samadhi that uh, we went through a couple, few classes ago. Adornments of insight because it is meditation that allows the insight into the nature of all phenomena to gradually arise and give rise to these experiences. Shamatha meditation involves letting the mind dwell in its own nature. Once we've discovered that nature, we rest in that nature of no discrete entity. He's summing up here, Vipassana's non-dual insight into that ultimate reality by practicing the unity. One progressively achieves what are called the four yogas of Mahamudra, which are a way of mapping the path in the Mahamudra tradition. Uh, let's skip this guy. These were very helpful overviews of meditation practice, but I don't think we need to go through them in any detail. Uh, the prajna of meditation. Uh, in this chapter in this book called Meditation in Action, which is Rinpoche's first book in the West, published in 1968 initially in England by Shambhala Publications. In the last chapter on the Paramita of Prajna, which means the transcendence of prajna, transcending prajna. He goes through the three levels of prajna, hearing, contemplating, and meditating. And this is the meditation stage. And uh, he says, here we ask ourselves, who am I? We don't start from I and then want to achieve something, but we stare directly. I'm sorry, start directly with the subject. In other words, one starts the real meditation without aiming for anything, without the thought, I am meditating to achieve something. Since we don't know who I am, one should not start from I at all. One even begins to learn from beyond that point. But remains is simply to start on the subject, to start on what is, which is not really I am. So one goes directly to that, directly to the is sort of fruitional way of presenting this notion of Vipassana meditation, Prajna, which Vipassana, which leads to the development of Prajna by exploring the sense of I or self. And we'll see a number of readings in uh, this package about the ego or the I. Um, just briefly, he talks about expectation. A lot of people come to meditation with a lot of expectation. And it's important to uh, let go of expectation without thinking in terms of the future at all. Just leap into it, jump into it without looking back. There's two stages in the practice of meditation. The first involves disciplining oneself to develop the first starting point of meditation. This is shamatha. Here we have certain techniques such as observing the breathing. At the second stage, one surpasses and sees the reality behind the technique of breathing or whatever the technique may be. And one develops an approach to re actual reality through the technique, a kind of feeling of becoming one with the present moment. This is Vipassana. 
bit more of a traditional explanation, but in his uh, still unique way of uh, presenting things. And here we have a little overview of the Buddha's path from this book, Journey Without Goal, which is uh, Rimshi's first book on the Vajrayana teachings, public book. By applying mindfulness or bare attention to whatever arises during meditation, we begin to see that there's no permanence or solidity to our thought process. And at some point, we begin to realize there's no permanence or solidity to us. The meditative practice of mindfulness is called shamatha, in Tibetan, shine, which means the development of peace, a sense of taming the wildness of minds so that we're alert and able to experience ourselves directly. We're not talking about peace as some kind of trance state. It's the first step of waking up. Mindfulness naturally leads to the development of awareness, a sense of expansion, being aware of the environment or the space in which our mindfulness operates. Awareness brings tremendous interest in our world. We develop sympathy and caring. We saw this uh, in the readings for tonight where Shamatha and Vipassana are linked to Maitri, loving kindness and compassion. The practice of awareness in Sanskrit is Vipassana. In Tibetan, Lokchong, clear seeing is connected both with the practice of meditation and the formal study of the teachings and post-meditation activities in general. So it provides a link between the insight developed in meditation and our everyday life. It allows us to carry that meditative insight or awareness into our daily life. Through the insight that comes from Vipassana, we make the discovery of egolessness. We develop a precise understanding of how mind functions and how confusion is generated. We're able to see how the belief in ego causes tremendous pain and suffering to ourselves and others. And then from this comes the desire to renounce the wheel of suffering of ego. Renunciation is the desire to refrain from harming ourselves and others and longing for the path of liberation and so on and so forth. Because of the discovery of egolessness in shamatha. So here, uh, you know, partly it's a uh, one of the objectives of this course and gathering all these readings together is to, sh is to show that um, in, in some ways, Trungpa is um, is finger painting. He's he's uh, um, looking for ways of conveying the subtleties of the the Buddhist meditative tradition or tradition of meditation to us um, without uh, getting without encouraging us to get fixated on the uh, the endless details that otherwise might have happened. And in doing that, he's constantly trying to, he's constantly coming up with ways of schemes, ways of simplifying the teachings, making them really clear 
and linking them together, connecting them up. And we see that tonight a lot where he connects Shamatha and Vipassana with all, the, all these different aspects of the path that uh, I, I've never seen any other teacher do. It's quite unique. Because of this discovery of egolessness in Shamatha. So some places he says we discover egolessness in Shamatha and most other places he says it's in Vipassana. And the development of interest and sympathy in Vipassana. We begin, we naturally begin to expand our sense of warmth and friendliness to others. I think it's implied here that the sense of warmth and friendliness begins with ourselves and then we're expanding it to others. We're less interested in me and more interested in the rest of our, uh, the world and so forth. Here we have a little uh, jump into the, the scheme of what ego and egolessness are, which is very helpful to understand. And uh, it's primarily, <coughs> excuse me, related to the prajna of uh, study and contemplation. And then it's brought into practice in Vipassana, in Shamatha as well, in Shamatha and Vipassana in terms of uh, what what level of understanding we have of ego and egolessness, as opposed to con uh, continuing the uh, detailed analysis. We don't do the detailed analysis in meditation, obviously. In general, the various levels of the path have to do with your relationship to ego and your understanding of egolessness. That's the key way of uh, explaining the progression of the path or understanding it. The Mahayana realization of twofold egolessness is, de is dependent on the Hinayana, in that you first need to develop the egolessness of individuality as well as the first half of the egolessness of dharmas. Now, if you've never heard of this way of presenting egolessness as having two parts and the second part having two parts, this is a little bit, will be a little bit. Uh, confusing to you. But the idea is that there's a sense of ego of people, uh, meaning uh, in the sense people includes all sentient beings such as dogs, cats, goldfish, and mosquitoes. So any sentient being is a person in this, this sense, egolessness of the self. So there's there's uh, organisms develop a sense of ego, of ego, sorry, not egolessness, ego of the self. There's uh, this uh, fiction that within a, a discrete organism, there's something in control. There's some part of that organism that is in control of the full organism. And that part of that organism is the self or the ego. And that's the, the main fixation that creates samsara. Being bound in samsara is this fixation on the self of sentient beings, on their being a self. And then there's also a fixation on there being a, a reality to the phenomena of our world, the inanimate phenomena of the world. 
the trees and the greenery and so forth. Um, plus the environment, the air, the space, the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth. All of that seem very real, don't they? So there's this, that's called the self of dharmas. Dharmas meaning phenomena. And the confusing part is that a person is a phenomena too. So people actually have two types of self. We have the self of persons. We have this this feeling that there's a coordinating agent within us, that that's our real essence of who we are, and that essence that hasn't changed since we were a kid and continues to not change as the rest of our body and mind and emotion changes. This is the ego of the self, of the person. We all have that as well as we think that our physical body is real. Our limbs, the whole thing, we think that it's real. We think it's ours. It's the first ego. Thinking that it's ours is the first ego. Thinking that it exists in reality is the second type of ego. Ego of dharma's phenomena. That includes emotions. We think emotions are real. We think thoughts are real. We think that mind is real. In the Buddhist tradition, there's two real things. Form and mind, matter and mind. So we have two types of ego, ego of persons and then the ego of dharmas. And the general scheme, that the, the way Rinpoche, again, has somewhat of a simplification, he presents that in the Hinayana, we work on the ego of this person. So he says, it's in the Hamnayana, you first need to develop the egolessness of individuality. So understand the lack of ego in the person, or the lack of self in an individual, as well as the first half of the egolessness of dharmas. And um, so the ego of dharmas, the, the ego, the, the belief that there's an essence, in this case, ego, means essence that makes something what it is, the self, the entity of phenomena, the reality of phenomena. There's two aspects to the reality of phenomena, called the first half and the second half, although they don't, the two halves, they're not really exactly half. There's no way to really measure, is it half or is it 40% or 60%? Basically, there's two aspects to the belief in the reality of phenomena, such as legs and arms and rocks and chairs and tables and planets and space and time and things like that. There's the belief that there's some part of things that persists through time, just like with the ego of persons. And there's the belief that um, that that part that persists in things through time doesn't change and is the essence of rock, chair, tree, whatever it is. So that's the sort of 
coarse level of the belief in the reality of phenomena. And then there's different ways of presenting or views of what is uh, the subtle second half of the essence of dharmas. And in Trump, the way Trungpa Rinpoche presents it, it's from, the, from an experiential point of view. It's the, it's the hanging on to the understanding of things as being empty. That means of that second half of the emptiness of dharmas. So Vipassana is all about understanding egolessness. So to understand egolessness, we have to study what is the view of ego in the Buddhist tradition outside of meditation. What does it feel like? The ego or the self, what are its aspects, what are its qualities, or what are its types? And so this was a presentation to these different types of belief in the self. The ego of dharmas comes from fixating on the am of I am. So the, the ego of persons or individuals it arises or comes from or is the fixation on the I of I am. We have the I and then we have am. And the way he's presenting it, which is interesting sort of experiential way, is that the am part is the ego of dharmas. And uh, so this, this way of breaking the ego of dharmas into two parts is uh, we've liberated the I, but we still have not completed, completely clarified the, the level of am. You're still fixated on am. I'm sort of hoping that this is confusing to you because, because I'm hoping that it being somewhat confusing to you will inspire you to investigate it. You know, so there's one, uh, we've been spending a lot of time talking about the practice of Vipassana, the different types, the stages, the aspects and so forth. But, you know, when we looked at the stages of Vipassana, of, okay, experience the emptiness of the external world or the percept, the object, experience the emptiness of the object, we didn't really go into any detail about what that means or how that is understood in the Buddhist tradition. What is, what is when we say these terms, all... Uh, Phenomena are not truly existent, are not real, are not intrinsically real or existent, or genuinely real or existent. What do these things mean? So it's important, in addition to understanding how Vipassana works, Vipassana being, in essence, the investigation of the nature of our experience, it's helpful to or it's essential to study what is the Buddhist view of the nature of experience, of the experiencer, so that our, then our meditation, 
on that, when we bring that into meditation, then our experience of it becomes progressively deeper, a deeper letting go of the fixation on the belief or the um, assumption of the reality of me and my world, I and am. Eric? Yes, sir. Can you just repeat like a synonym or, or something of what the like the dharmas or like egos ego of dharmas is? I feel like phenomena. Phenomena. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> dharmas is usually translated as phenomena. It felt like an obvious question, I'm so sorry. No problem. No problem. No question is is uh, too big or too small or too round or too square. <laughs> So the primordial am comes from some kind of I am, but not from the original I am. So he's, uh, throughout his teachings over and over again, he's trying to convey what these different aspects of fixation on the belief of things being real or fixation on the reality of the supposed reality of things, believing things to be real. And the, the stages of that involve these different aspects. In the Mahayana, you get, you're giving up and letting go. You're letting go of your fixation on sal your own salvation and you're letting go of your righteousness and religiosity. And so he's comparing the philosophical view of, of understanding that the complete emptiness of phenomena with a, with a uh, sort of psychological holding on to some sense of what I do as opposed to what I am. Theoretically, what I am has been cut through already. But even having understood that there's no am, no, no I am, there's still an I do. There's still I understand emptiness. And we have to let go of that feeling that I am doing something. The attitude or the experiencer of attitude that is cut through, which is the second half of the ego of dharmas, is the final aspect of ego. Okay, so I, I uh, encourage you to read through these sections in detail to start or to deepen your understanding of uh, the sense of ego and self in this tradition. I'm sorry? Derek. That's it, me. Yeah, that's you. Um, <laughs> it sounds like, it's, it seems like, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but it's like we have to understand it and then disown that which understands. Exactly. Exactly, because because when you first understand it, you create a concept of of having understood something, and you have to let go of that concept. So it's just like the progression of the four stages of vipassana, where by understanding the emptiness of the self of persons or the emptiness of the self of phenomena, we experience the sense of I understand, and that. 
that sense of I understand functions as an antidote to the clinging to the reality of self and phenomena. Yeah. But we have to let go of the antidote. If, if we, like if we give ourselves brownie points, we're taking stepwards, backward steps. We're back into the recreating ourselves again. Exactly, patting ourselves on the back recreates ourselves. So here's this sort of summary. The development of egolessness is a progressive process, not a sudden attainment. On page 24, shamatha is the basic technique. On the basis of that, Vipassana is the practice that leads to the realization of the first egolessness, the egolessness of self, and then to the realization of the one-and-a-half-fold egolessness, which is the egolessness of self and the first half of the egolessness of phenomena or dharmas. Vipassana practice culminates in prajna, which is the quality of being that brings the complete experience of twofold egolessness or shunyata, emptiness. Then he says we should be clear about the difference between the tool and the experience, not confuse technique with experience. So prajna is what's sharpened through vipassana practice. And, and through sharpened prajna, we experience shunyata. So prajna is the tool. Prajna gives birth to shunyata experience of the Buddhas and Vipassana is the stone that sharpens the sword of prajna. You can't experience complete egolessness just with Vipassana because you you could not do it without prajna, but if you abandon vipassana, you don't get anywhere at all. So you need vipassana up into a point, and then you have to let go of it, just as we've been, uh, Rob and I have been talking about. Let's see, and then uh, he goes through these three types of uh, Psalm 10 being uh, meditation which are not actually that helpful. I realized afterwards, putting them in here, of course. And, uh, and a little snippet where he uh, presents this image of the burning of conceptual mind. But we, I went through some of these guys. Discovering a world beyond ego and the two types of effort. There we go. Two types of effort. In joining together shamatha and vipassana, the union of shamatha and vipassana, we talk about two types of efforts, surrendering and continuity. The practice of surrendering or devotional virias called kujor, meaning respect and application or the practice of devotion. It's being devoted toward to letting go. The practice of continuity or ongoing virya is takjur, which means practicing continuously, the practice of continuity. So these two types of effort, there's like this underlying ongoing effort of, that pervades our life once we've committed ourselves to the Buddhist path, once we've committed ourselves to the practice of meditation, to the cultivation of mindfulness and awareness. Ideally, it pervades all of our existence, all of our conscious life. 
we have this constant reference point of being aware and being mindful, being present in our world, being conscientious, taking care of what we're doing, in what we're doing. And then there's a sporadic sense of exertion of trying to be alert in meditation practice or in post-meditation, trying to accomplish different things in our life requires different types of uh, attention or exertion or understanding or applying different uh, skills that we might have. So those are more sporadic. So there are these two types of um, sort of driving energies throughout, throughout the path, and these balance each other. The sp sporadic one could become impulsive, and the ongoing one could become dry. So we need them both together. And they are the basic core of the shamatha vipassana marriage or union. Shamatha vipassana is recommended as the vanguard of the Mahayana practice. Shunyata, as we know. It's the way that you step out of the path of accumulation onto the path of unification, the second of the five paths. Now, if you're not familiar with the scheme of the five paths, this may seem, this may be a little confusing, but basically in the Buddhist uh, uh, tradition, the uh, stages of the paths are broken up into five parts. The third path, or the third stage of the path, is, is your basic enlightenment, and is equivalent to the first bhumi of the bodhisattva path. And then there's, after that, there's the path of familiarizing yourself with the discovery of emptiness, which occurred at the third path, where you achieve a sort of basic enlightenment. You see emptiness, experience emptiness directly. And then you deepen that experience that you, that you had in meditation practice. Initially, we experience emptiness in meditation practice, and then we arise from meditation and we're talking about a high level of experience here, not my version of being in meditation and arising out of meditation, but um, an enlightened person's meditation. And then after that, that person comes back out of meditation and encounters the, the uh, complexity of their world. And those two experiences are, appear separately. There's in meditation and there's after meditation. And in after meditation, old habitual patterns resurface, even, there, even though there's no belief in the two types of ego or self. But the, the habit patterns of believing in them resurface. And so then there's the path of the ten bhumis to overcome that, which culminates in complete Buddhahood. But before enlightenment, there's two stages. There's the stage that's called accumulation, where we basically... Uh, focus on the shamatha and vipassana, practicing of shamatha and vipassana, in particular shamatha, and we accumulate merit by trying to reduce harm to ourselves and others, and try to study and learn about the Dharma, and try to bring our life in harmony with our practice and our focus on enlightenment. And throughout the path of accumulation, shamatha and vipassana remain separate. And when we're actually able to bring 
bring about the union of shamans and Rapashna, and then we enter into the second path, which is what brings us into the direct experience of emptiness. So just briefly, scheme of the path. In Shamatha Vipassana, when you sit, you have an awareness of your surroundings. Your sense perceptions have been taken into an account, have been taken into account in developing the Vipassana, but you also have Shamatha practice of deliberateness, of getting into things directly. So these two aspects of meditation, the precise attention to detail of Shamatha and the open panoramic awareness quality of the way that Trumper and Shea describes Vipassana, bringing it together those two types of practice is said to be one of the most enlightening and promising techniques ever developed. And here he describes it. When we combine them, we feel the verge of the breath or the touch of the breath going out rather than being heavy-handedly involved in the breath. So uh, here we have a, a quite interesting experiential description of these two practices and bringing them together. So in this first sentence, the implication is that in shamatha we have more of a heavy-handed involvement with the breath. There's like this very deliberate focus on the breath, on being the breath or merging with the breath. And once we experience this, this sense of Vipassana in the way that he presents it, as an awareness of everything around the breath as well, we experience the touch of the breath, the, the outline. He says in other places, the outline of the breath. At the same time, there's a feeling of completeness around us everywhere in all directions, an environmental feeling. So we have the focus object of the breath, and then we have um, an, an engagement with the totality of the environment we're in. When the breathing dissolves, we sense that when the breathing dissolves, it's an expanding process, dissolving at this point, at that point, and further points. The dissolving is taking place in the whole universe, and you are, in a sense, nowhere. Finally, you lose the reference point as to who is breathing, where the breathing is dissolving. But that sense of complete desolation cannot take place unless the precision and accuracy of the breathing is happening at the same time. So, Derek, do you think that they mean dissolution as opposed to desolation? Um... Oh, <laughs> he he switched, right? He was, when the breathing is dissolving, and then he said, but that sense of complete desolation. Yeah, you know, um, I think he meant desolation. Uh, that, that from the dissolution of who is breathing and where the breathing is happening, there's, uh, we, we lose the sense of me and other. Okay. Okay, so that is a sense of loss of self. That's really yes, interesting. exactly, yeah. Uh, you know, he, he sort of left out a, an intermediary sentence here. It's like the, the sense of dissolving of the subject and the object brings about a, an experience of desolation, of aloneness. Right. And that sense of complete desolation can't take place unless we still have the precision and accuracy of the breathing. So 
sometimes people emphasize uh, meditation, the expansion process of meditation, um, to the exclusion of continuing to apply precision to the to the object of the breath. You know, like letting go of it entirely and just experiencing the space. The Rimshe is saying if you do that and you don't have still the precision and accuracy on some object such as the breath, some object that's like the breath, meaning like an object that's not a conceptual experience, but the breath or the posture or a, a sense perception, if you don't still maintain that, then you don't have uh, uh, that complete desolation where the eye disappears, the sense of, of um, the sense of I being present disappears. If you space out too much, then it reinforces the sense of I in a, in a sort of subtle way of ignorance, like I'm floating out, I'm, you know, disappearing. Anyway. Thank you. That's really interesting. Yeah, that, that transition there was quite a bit of a leap and very essential. So the accuracy of shamatha happens to be independent of the particular department <laughs> of our being that perpetuates the sense of reference point. So, you know, some people like feel like, oh, you have to let go of the breath or the object entirely in order to experience emptiness or letting go. And he said, those are two different departments. The, the accuracy experienced in shamatha is a, is a department that's separate from the ego reference point department. They have their own budgets, their own you know, extension and so forth, their own email address and their own website. But even if there's no point of reference with shamatha, as the breathing goes out, it is real and complete breathing out. The sense of reference point is connected to the psychosomatic body which is the source of security. So we, we looked at that earlier, the uh, sense of uh, the sort of mental projection of meanness through the body. If you lose that reference point and you feel it, you have at last freed yourself from the world of desire and your psychosomatic sickness has no control over you anymore. But you still have a ways to go, a long way to go. You've not yet touched shunyata. Although maybe subtle, there's still a sense of self. Although the heaviest part of the neurosis has been removed, there's still a feeling of duality. So here, after that sort of uh, conceptual presentation of the different aspects of ego or self, of having two, the two types of self, or egoless, ego and egolessness, then the second part has two aspects. So here he's given a much more experiential version. Um, for the practitioner, the sense of self abides in the teachings and the practice itself. That is the only security there is, trusting in the truth of the teachings. With practice, there is definitely a change because you experience the desolation of things being not at all, that's not all that solid and definite. Your belief in physical existence is being pulled apart, but you still believe in the discontinuity. So a lot of people say, um, uh, that emptiness or, or uh, um, shunyata means that everything is one. 
And that's not what emptiness means. Um, so when he says here that uh, we believe in the discontinuity, we it's, uh, that's like this idea that because things don't exist as separate entities, therefore everything is one. Discontinuity is another version of theism, is another is a more subtle version of uh, belief in reality. So there's this abstract belief that what pulls you apart is a form of security. There's still some kind of trust that you're going to continue and you have a practice to work with. So although you lose your body, ain't no body, you can still practice. And Shamatha Vipassana, mind and space mixed together. That mixing of mind and space comes from the two types of virya. Theory of devotion leans toward the practice of precision, bending one's fantasies, fantasies rather to the simple breath. That's the shamatha aspect, and the virya of continuity is related with the vipassana. That sort of all-encompassing sense of being committed to understanding the true nature of emptiness. In shamatha vipassana, you need them both happening together simultaneously. And then we have this uh, wonderful presentation of beyond past, present, and future is the fourth moment. So let's see. So this is a little bit of a progression of the of the uh, presentation of the whole progression of shamatha to vipassana to shamatha vipassana. So probably, uh, I don't know. If, it's sort of worth going through. So, Shamatha, it sort of sums up our whole course. Maybe this, maybe we can just end the course with this. It sort of is the culmination. The Shamatha experience, the slow process of mindfulness that takes place on the beginner's level, allows us to be available to ourselves. So, we start by working on ourselves. And the first step is to not be a nuisance to others. The starting point is the shamatha practice of meditation, in which we begin to catch ourselves being a nuisance to ourselves. We find that we're being a nuisance to ourselves, let alone a nuisance to our others. And we get frustrated with that situation. So the first step is to make friends with ourselves because otherwise we'll just get extremely frustrated when we begin to see through shamatha practice through our meditation practice how screwed up our mind is and how we're just creating complexity and confusion and, and uh, suffering endlessly. So that is the motto of shamatha experience, make friends with yourself. It means accepting and acknowledging all of ourself, all of what we are. Your subconscious gossip, fantasies, fantasies, dreams, everything. Everything you learn about yourself, you bring back to the technique, to the awareness of breathing. Having made friends with yourself, you feel a sense of relief and excitement. But don't get too excited. <laughs> You're still just at the beginning. Next is the experience of Vipassana, which is a sense of fundamental awareness. Such awareness acknowledges the boundaries of non-awareness, of wandering mind. You begin to realize the boundary and the contrast. 
in um, your awareness is taking place and your confusion, your mindfulness is also taking place. So you realize that, but you don't make a big deal about it. You accept the whole situation as part of the basic awareness. Not only are you aware of your breath and your posture and your thought process, but you're fundamentally mindful and aware. There's a sense of totality. You're aware of the room, the rug, your cushion. What You're aware of what color hair you have what you did earlier in the day. Constantly aware of such things. Beyond that, there is non-verbal, non-conceptual awareness that doesn't talk in terms of facts and figures. You have a fundamental, somewhat abstract level of awareness and of being. There's a sense that this is taking place. Something's happening right here. The sense of being experienced without words takes place. It's unnameable. We can't call it consciousness exactly because that implies you're evaluating. We can't call it awareness, which could be misunderstood. It's not simply awareness. It's just a state of being. Being what? Who knows? So in, in my mind, he's talking about these two aspects of meditation, of mindfulness-focused attention and then a, 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 an awareness sense um, knows what's going on, the knowing quality called samprajanya or shesha in Tibetan. This may sound rather vague, but it's not really. There's a very strong energy, a very powerful thing is taking place. There's a shock. The electricity being pulled back into the present constantly here, here, here. It's happening. It's really taking place. hand we don't know what's going on on the other hand there's enormous precision and understanding this is the state of apashna of realization or insight you begin to see inside your mind and the level of non-verbal awareness non-verbal cognitive mind is functioning you may say verbally i hear traffic and so forth i hear my wristwatch ticking i hear my husband yelling at me but you also have to say i hear but i don't hear at the same time When he says something like that, he's trying to speak to a different part of our mind, the nonverbal part of our mind. So he has to use these contradictory phrases. Such totality is taking place, a very precise something or other is happening. That is the state of Vipassana, nonverbal, non-conceptual, and very electric. Neither ecstasy, ecstasy nor state of dullness, it's a state of hearness nowness described as nowness nowness is sometimes referred to as the forest moment that may sound very mystical you have the past present and future which are the three moments and then you have something else going on which is the fourth moment the fourth is not a far out or extraordinary experience as such it's just a state of experience that doesn't even belong to now it doesn't belong to what might be either. It belongs to a non-category, 
another sense of category. That's the fourth moment. That's the state of apashna or the state of non-ego. The Tibetan term for this is which means the knowledge of egoless insight. It's a very real experience in which nothing can be misunderstood. It's overwhelming experience. This experience comes at you. You experience it precisely and in great detail. So he's presenting in a very experiential way this this feeling of uh, the knowing quality of meditation connecting with the non-conceptual part of our being that non-analytical Vipassana is meant to um, help us experience. This is what is happening in Vipassana experience. It becomes so real and precise that it transcends any reference point of the doctrine, of the teachings. It's just life. In fact, ironically, you begin to find you can't escape. Life is practicing you. It becomes very real and obvious. So there's this sense of haunting that he talks. He describes it as a hauntingness in other places. It's an important point in the process of spiritual development, this fourth moment. You actually realize that you're on the path and everything in your life begins to haunt you there. That sometimes the haunting process takes the form of pleasurable confirmation. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm experiencing letting go. Sometimes it's painful and threatening, like, where am I? What's going on? Where's my solid ground? Where's my comfortable world of me? There's the feeling of some kind of ghost haunting you all the time. You can't get rid of it. You can't even call the Catholics to exercise it. <laughs> a state of insight and state of being simultaneously haunted is the experience of the fourth moment. Simultaneous insight and hauntingness. Hauntingness, it's like you're, you're this other part of your being is starting to invade your waking consciousness. It's like there's this, this other being inside of you, this non-conceptual part of you that's starting to emerge into your conscious that normally is totally unconscious. And like you sink into it at night in deep sleep or something, or maybe it's active in dream sleep. But suddenly it's like coming into your daytime and experience. It's like, what's going on here? You, you're not supposed to be here. It's daytime. I'm awake. You might feel that you're sitting and camping on the razor's edge. So you're on this tenuous, sharp edge between this and that, between losing it entirely or being completely present or letting go. And uh, you might cut yourself if you make any wrong moves too quickly. Making campfires quite happily, yet knowing you're on the razor's edge, you can't settle down or relax. And yet we, we do, because there's no alternative. So we try to. That state of hauntedness is the state of ego, actually. Somebody in your family, some part of your beginning being is beginning to complain that they're getting uncomfortable messages. What's he talking about there? Somebody in your family, some part of your being is getting uncomfortable messages? your ego. In other words, the Vipassana awareness of the fourth moment cannot materialize unless there's a slight tinge of being haunted by your ego. So this goes back to the contrast and the boundaries. 
when we begin to actually experience our ego in a direct way, as opposed to like being the ego, you know, we're used to our whole life. We're like, we're being me and we're operating from the point of view of being me and projecting that outward. But now it's like we've shifted where we are. And so we're, we're starting to meet our ego as like a third party. The Vipassana awareness of the fourth moment can't materialize unless there's a slight tinge of being haunted by your own ego. The hauntedness and the sense of insight work together, and that's what creates the experience. So you begin to ex experience the sense of ego that we have all the time as a sort of object because of our insight, or that creates the insight into what the ego is. We begin to understand what this ego is because we actually encounter it as from the outside instead of being inside it. The present is the third moment and has a sense of presence. I can feel your presence. I feel the presence of the light. When it's on, now there is no darkness. The present provides a sense of security. You know where you are. You keep your flashlight in your pocket. If you encounter darkness, you take out your flashlight. Show the, shine the light to show where you're going. <laughs> obviously a, a metaphor you feel enormous relief created by that little spot of light in front of you you don't see the whole environment but you see the sense of presence and the present so we don't see the totality of reality but we see this very small little spotlight but because of the limitation of our ego and the way it operates, it collapses our world down into a little spotlight. And it provides immense security to us because we, we know what's going on now, theoretically, or we think. Whereas the fourth moment is everything else around that. It's the complete totality of the universe. Basic awareness is taking place, which doesn't need any particular reassurance as such. It's happening. It's there. You feel the totality. You perceive not only the beam of light from the flashlight, but you see the space around you at the same time. And the fourth moment is therefore a much larger version of the third moment. When you experience this, there isn't enough intelligence taking place. I'm sorry, without the experience of the fourth moment, there isn't enough intelligence play taking place. You're just accepting things naively, sort of from habit. And that naivete may become the basis for spiritual materialism. We think we're such good meditators. We're very focused on the present. And we're clinging to the present. We're dwelling on the present. Naivete is believing in something that doesn't exist, which means that it becomes a sense of ignorance or stupidity. You turn on the cold shower and you hope everything's going to be okay. <laughs> kind of like, get real here, jump in a cold shower. You try to make sure that everything would be predictable and okay, and then you just give in. You're not prepared for any reminders. Then there's this little twist of hot water that takes place. Whenever there's a reminder, it is part of the fourth moment. So little reminders, like you stub your toe or you nick your finger, you know, like you're being a little bit mindless and you get these little reminders, little messages from the fourth moment, from the larger universe of there being some larger experience beyond your ego. And those little reminders, that those experiences highlight the ego 
so that you can see the ego. If you don't have a reminder, then you're just at the mercy of chaos, of samsara. You're just lost in your habitual patterns. And that's why the sitting meditation, practice of meditation is so important. It's a boiler. Uh, it boils down to that. Anyway, it's pretty ordinary stuff, right? Just like basic meditation 101. Okay, so tonight we're going to go through uh, package 12 in about 15 minutes. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, the training and the union continued in the different categories. And we went through these guys and then we have just a couple of little things to uh, read. So realistically, we'll just make it through a couple of these. But so starting here on uh, uh, with the root text. Okay, we're in the section of the root text by John McConchell called the general summary of the categories. And first we have a brief listing of them. The different categories of shamatha, the, the meditations on ugliness, love, the cycles of breathing, pratyahara, bodies, prana, generating phase, mantra recitation, resting the mind naturally. All are but methods for developing the meditation of shamatha, the concentration of shamatha. So hopefully this, this question has arisen in your mind of like, if Shamaja and Vipassana pervade all different aspects of practice in the Buddhist tradition, where do, uh, you know, Maitri and Karuna and the four limitless ones sit in this scheme and the other types of practices? So in brief, in the common path, one meditates on the nine aspects of ugliness. So this is a, a reference to uh, a Hinayana practice of uh, developing dispassion, overcoming desire and attachment by uh, visualizing the decomposition of the object of attachment, the, the body. One trains the mind in love and compassion and concentrates on the breath by counting its cycles of rising and falling and resting. In the Vajrayana, there are many other methods, such as the instructions of Pratyahara, by which the ordinary connection between the sense faculties and their object is individually cut through and distraction is eliminated. So the practice of Pratyahara, which is actually comes from, or is common with the tradition of Patanjali of yoga practice is the, the cutting off of sense uh, perception is withdrawing different types of withdrawing from objects or ice called in the Vajrayana scheme called isolation. We do isolation of body, speech, and mind. And then there's visualization of uh, the nadis, which are the, the uh, pathways that energy travels in the body and the psychic body in the Vajrayana system. We visualize them as hollow pathways throughout the body and the prana Yoga is where we work with the energies that travel along those nadis in different ways, such as uh, Tumo meditation or uh, the inner heat meditation, or just like uh, what you might do at your yoga class where you do breathing exercises. Concentration on the bliss arising through the melting of the bindu, 
there's this idea that there's little uh, places in the body where there's uh, essences or um, uh, condensed energy in the form of little little spheres that reside in the uh, nadis and travel along them and uh, Vajrayana practices some of them in, involve working with those bindus to uh, melt them to create a feeling of bliss visualization of deities visualization practice and mantra recitation and then uh, finally in the practice of Mahamudra and Mahaati one rests the mind in the natural spacious and uncontrived state this is the real kicker this is all of these are nothing but methods for developing shamatha and must begin with concentration on the object in accordance with the faculties of each or capabilities of each person so even this this experience in mahamudra mahaati of resting the mind in the natural spacious unconstrained state that's shamatha Normally, that's presented as like the culmination of Mahamudra and Mahati is that. But that resting quality, without the recognition quality, without the insight, it's just shamatha. I shouldn't say just, it is shamatha. Shamatha is not a just. Shamatha is an amazing practice, as we see in uh, the different categories of Vipassana. Analysis of, I can't even say that word. Can anyone say that? I don't know. It's too big. Definiendum. One more time. Definiendum. Definiendum. That's good. Cool. What is a definiendum? Is that like what happens in the end? Is that the predicate? Is it? Or? It's the thing that's being defined. Oh, Barbara. Right on the right. nose. You got it. Nailed. That which is defined is the definiendum. And then there's the, def- the the definition itself. So if we say like a fire is that which is hot and burning, that's the definition. And uh, there's, you know, candles on your shrine maybe that have fire on top where the wick is. And that's the definiendum. Um, actually, that's an example. And so fire as a general idea is the definiendum fire is defined as that which is hot and burning and an example is the candle on your shrine and of the general specific character of phenomena general character generally characterized phenomena are conceptual ideas generalities and specifically characterized phenomena are actual instances dharmas dependent arising the 12-fold steps, uh, 12 Madonnas. The five reasons, which are the uh, reasonings for emptiness in the Madhyamaka, pointing out the nature of mind by means of four different ways, scripture, reasoning, spiritual influence, whatever that is, and symbols. All are methods for developing supreme discriminating knowledge in accordance with the faculties of individuals. All of these are Vipassana. Practicing Vipassana, one uses methods such as the analysis of these things, uh, as in the study of valid cognition, the analysis of general specific character phenomena, as in the Abhidharma, as well as the 12 links of dependent arising in two different ways in the order of production, 
which is normally how we've looked at them, and in the reverse order, the collapse of samsara, where the, the twelvefold and dhanas go backwards. The analysis of the cause is reasoning for emptiness, number one. Of the effect, it's two. The combination is three. And the essential nature of a given phenomena, it's um, the unity. The nature of unity of phenomena is the fourth reasoning. And then interdependence is the fifth. These being the five great reasons of the Madhyamaka. Madhyamika tradition by which means of which mental fabrications are severed, even though they don't exist, and various ways of pointing out the nature of mind directly and nakedly, for example, by scriptures, reasoning, spiritual inference, and symbols. All of these are gradual methods for developing the supreme discriminating knowledge, prajna, in accordance with the faculties of various practitioners. Since one can accomplish the samadhi of Shamatavipasana by any of these methods, it's not necessary for a single practitioner to use all of them together. Thank God we don't have to do all of these things. So just briefly, let's go through um, this interesting one from the Moonbeams of Mahamudra by Dashi Namjil. Further clarification of the essence of Shamatha Vipassana. And and I'm sort of going to skip these quotes, but just as an example of... uh, why I failed to use this sutra in this class. This sutra called the Unraveling the Intent is the core Mahayana sutra on Shamatha Vipassana. And uh, it's a very hard to understand sutra. And uh, there's a new translation of it that just came out. I didn't have a chance to uh, digest it and extract from it for this class. But... um, Anyway, it's, it's similar descriptions of what is shamatha and what is vipassana. And then simpler ones, shamatha is one-pointed mind. Vipassana is the discernment of what is real. Knowing the path of shamatha to be the summary of the names of the dharmas, sort of obscure and path of vipassana to be a, the analysis of their meaning. Um, on the basis of correct stillness, mind rests in mind. It's shamatha, and because phenomena are thoroughly differentiated, is vipassana. Skipping Vasubandhu's remarks, generally speaking, it's clearly taught to concentrate on any object of meditation and rest in the mind more pointedly without distractions. It's shamatha, and it's taught that the mind that differentiates and analyzes by discerning the nature of noble objects is vipassana. Everything from the first stages of settling the mind and the object and resettling up through the stages of creating a single continuum and equipoise said to be shamatha and everything from attention and differentiating the characteristics of the nature of phenomena or noble objects up through the final stages, the full development of the spontaneous engagement of expertise in prashna is vipassana. And that's... Um, That's too confusing. So uh, let's leave these other readings 
for next time from Shumperim Shir, where we'll see how he presents Shamacha and Vapashna and uh, all the many different aspects of the path, ranging from Maitri, loving kindness, and Karuna, compassion, to um, the six Paramitas. Uh, he correlates them with Shamacha and Vapashna, respectively. And then uh, the four Nundro practices, the four preliminary practices of Vajrayana, which all of you will have to, uh, or, oh, sorry, which all of you will be, be uh, have the opportunity to engage in soon. And I'm sure you're dying to do your prostrations. There's actually not that many prostrations that you need to do, just a hundred thousand. And then um, uh, even the four stages of uh, the Mahamudra, the four yogas are affiliated with Shamta and Vipassana as well as uh, Abhisheka then is seen as the culmination where the two come together and you have the union. So next week we'll look at those and then uh, just a few other little con- sort of concluding um, presentations, sort of uh, trajectory of uh, Shamata Vipassana. And next week is our last class, and as traditional, we, uh, we're all supposed to bring some goodies, um, refreshments of food and, and uh, drink for ourselves and everyone else. So uh, there's a lot of people here, so you don't, have to, you don't have to bring for everybody, you know. But like, you know, six pack of beer is probably enough. You don't need to bring 23 beers, okay? So thank you very much, and uh, we'll close with our rededicating. We'll be dedicated some time ago. This merit may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Comments or suggestions, any anything or any questions, any good jokes or anything? <laughs> hey, Derek. Yes. I want to tell you that I think that that Jamgang Control, the third reading, was a, a pretty amazing like intersection of classical Buddhism with like the more modern language of Trungpa. It was really studded out as being like. It's not like Trumpa style, but it's like a modern read that I found. It was like really striking that I really was like looking forward to commenting, doing like, yay, that was great, you know. Yeah, that was that was really unique. Uh, as you said, it's a wonderful intersection between the traditional and the, the contemporary. And he, he was unique in that way, John Kongshul, and uh, was able to uh, bring the traditional presentation into the the Sangha of Trungpa Rinpoche, who had been uh, cultivated with Rinpoche's presentation almost exclusively, and uh, and uh, connect those those dots, so to speak. So thank you for for mentioning that. Yeah, he was an amazing guy. It's such a loss. Amazing teacher. What else? Anything else? I have a question about um, when Trungpa Rinpoche is talking about maintaining accuracy of shamatha while 
doing Vipassana. How um, would that still be an out breath only focus, or is it a little more in breath and out breath, or is that overly analyzing it? <laughs> I think it varies. It, it varies. It could be it could be a little bit more of a continuity within the larger uh, scope of the panoramic type awareness, or it could be. Um, like uh, there could be a number of objects of precision, the posture, the body posture, the breath. And and, and, in, and in either case, it would be like the outline of the breath in, in the way that he described it, as opposed to an immersion in the breath. You know, outline of the breath doesn't literally mean anything, but it's meant to evoke a feeling of sort of like a touching on the, on the breath as like a highlight you know it's and it's the sense of the contrast of sense experience that then balances the the complete lack of object of the panoramic experience so it can be it can be the breath the out breath alone or the in breath as well or the body posture or the maybe the light in the room or the sound in the room and uh there's different levels of sound in the room there's like uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, discrete out external sounds. Maybe there's creaking in the floors or the walls or people in rooms around you. Or maybe it's the sound of the space, which is sort of somewhere between the inside of your ear and the, and the space inside of your ear. And then there's the energy in the body. There's the flowing of energy in the body. So just refining your perception really, really uh, precisely <clears throat> so that you, you can experience all of these things basically at once as you're experiencing the totality. Mm -hmm. cool. So like hearing now, there's like a background noise, right? You know, so like it, it's like being aware of that background noise at the same time as being aware of, of what we're talking about, the sounds of our voices and the meaning of the words, as well as the sound of the words, and as well as like looking at everybody on the, on the screen. So it's like this, this quality of awareness that's spread out and flexible in that way, but it's not... Uh, it's not. Uh, it doesn't become fuzzy and totally spaced out. So it's like you don't get lost in the experience. Yeah, you don't get. Yeah, you don't sort of dissolve into, into it. Oh, thanks. That's it. Thank you, everyone. Nice to see you. Have a good evening, and see you next week. Thank you. Find the fourth moment. Thank you. Find the fourth moment. There you go. Bye.